This week's passage is Haggai 1, 1 through 11. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all, the, on all their labors. This is God's word. Please pray with me as I ask for his blessing this evening. Father, this passage, this book, like many uh, sort of more seldomly or rarely opened passages, has uh, difficulties in it. There's things in it that we read and that are difficult for us to understand. Help us to see your love in this passage. Help us to see your grace. Help us to see your kindness in revealing these things to your people. I pray for all of the students here, God, that you would meet them. Whether they know you or do not yet know you, they're just exploring or checking things out. I pray that you would make your kindness and love known to them. That you would grow them in their experience of your kindness and love, that they would understand it more. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us to know and to understand what it is that you want us to know tonight. For these students, um, and Lord, I I especially pray for myself, that you would enable me to say things about this passage, to talk about it in a way that is true and good and helpful and clear. Um, Lord, we praise your name. We ask that you would bless us and help us this evening. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. One of my favorite movies is The Emperor's New Groove. And if you remember, uh, the, the main character of The Emperor's New Groove is Emperor Kuzco, who is the emperor of the Incan Empire. And he has it all. He has riches, wealth, popularity, power in the opening, you know, credits you can see he has a theme song guy. He is the man, he is in charge, and yet it's not enough for him. The whole sort of premise of the movie is he uh, he has all this wealth, all these riches, properties, power. He feels like he has to build a a, a summer house. It's it's not enough for him. When someone throws him off his groove right, he throws that person out the window. But he thinks, you know, if I can just build my summer house on this exact right piece of property with a little water slide on the side, then I'll be happy. It's my birthday gift to me, he says. 
Um, he plans to bulldoze Potch's village to build it. But like, you know, the, the, the movie sort of goes off in a different direction. He doesn't get to do that. Um, he gets turned into a llama. But, but even though we can think, we can imagine that Kuzka, like, if he was able to do that, that would not fulfill him. That would not satisfy him. There would be, like, another mountaintop to build another summer house on later in the future. His pursuits leave him lonely and empty. This thing that he hopes is going to fill him does not fill him. Maybe that is something that you can relate to. Maybe you can imagine, or maybe it comes to mind... Uh, that you think of something that you longed for, that you worked for, that you pursued, you chased after, that you labored for, you, you, you wanted in your heart and hoping that having that thing, whatever it was, whether it was a, a, an, a, an item, a new piece of clothing, a new, you know, whatever, a new experience, going on a certain trip, spending time with a certain group of friends, getting a new job, getting the right internship, you thought that, that whatever it was would give you happiness, security, or fulfillment. I can think of tons of things that I looked to and I said, okay, if I can only have that, then I would feel safe, complete, happy. But what happens, right? You get it, and you realize either, you know, oh man, I just now have even more things to be worried about, or you realize that your joys in that thing, whatever it was, were fleeting. And you enjoyed it for a moment, and then it was gone. And it left you feeling empty. And it left you looking for the next thing, the next distraction. Haggai is writing to a people who are spiritually hungry and who are spiritually thirsty. Like me. And I think like you. Like you guys. He's writing to a people who are mostly looking out for themselves. And he calls them to look at the work that God is doing instead. He calls them to change their perspective, to to reorient their priorities, and to look at the work that God is doing in their lives, and ultimately to participate in it. That, that, That actually, if they were to participate in the work that God is doing, that they will find meaning, happiness, and security. Maybe not according to their desires or their expectations, but in knowing the Lord of hosts, that that title refers to, uh, you can also translate it, the Lord of armies. In knowing him, you can actually find meaning, happiness, and security. And the main point, the main thing I want you to see that this passage is calling us to do this evening is that because God is at work building his people up, he calls us, he calls you, to participate in the work that he's doing. Because God is at work, God is at work building his people up. He calls us to participate in the work that he is doing. There are two angles on this. There are two sort of sides of what it means to participate in God's work that I wanted to consider tonight. One is that God calls us to participate fully. God calls us to participate fully. And the other is that God calls us to participate faithfully. Fully and faithfully. So first, God calls us to participate fully. Uh, this book, right, is written by Haggai the prophet, but ultimately it's God's word. We see that over and over again. It says, the word of the Lord came by or through the hand of Haggai. That's what a prophet is. A prophet is someone in the Bible who reveals God's word, who writes it down and who says it to people. A prophet is someone who does the work of revealing what God wants, what God is like, and how God feels towards his people. So Haggai, the prophet, has written this, God's word. It's addressed to Zerubbabel. It's a fun name. 
And Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, Zerubbabel, that's a mouthful, is the governor of Judah. He's a, at this time, Judah is a province of the Persian Empire. Um, and Zerubbabel is the governor. He's a, a Jewish guy. He's actually a descendant of David that the Persian emperor has put as the governor over Judah. Joshua is the high priest. So these are the two sort of leaders of God's people at this point. Zerubbabel, the civil leader. Joshua, the religious leader. Uh, this is written to the people of God after their lowest point. So several, you know, about 100 years before this book is written, the Babylonian Empire has come in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, which is the center point of God, not only of God's people politically, but also like the center point of the relationship with God that God's people have. Because that's where the temple was. The temple, which is the place where God meets his people, the place where God's presence was made manifest. The temple was burned to the ground. And it's still a ruin in this time, in Haggai's time. They're at their lowest point. They've been in exile, and they've returned to find Jerusalem in ruins. And in other books, like Nehemiah and Ezra, we see the people of God rebuilding these things. This book is written before the temple is rebuilt. And actually, the Israelites are dragging their feet. In verse 2, it says, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is not the right time. That's what they're saying. They're not saying, oh, we don't care about that or, or we shouldn't do that. They're saying, ah, not yet. I don't really feel like it right now. This isn't the moment. And there's maybe two likely explanations for why they're saying that. One could be uh, opposition from enemies around them. We know from other books of the Bible that uh, there were sort of other people that were living in this land that were like, we don't want the temple to be rebuilt. And they were like using physical force and violence to threaten God's people. The other could be uh, economic or financial factors. Ah, if we just saved up a little bit more money, if we just waited a little bit longer, if we, if we cared about, you know, took care of ourselves first, then we would feel safe and secure enough to build this temple. You know, this isn't the best time. This isn't the most efficient time. We shouldn't do that. And I want us to think about, like, okay, what, what are they saying? What are they doing when they call that delay? What, or the inverse of that, what would it mean for them to actually build the house of the Lord? What would, it, what would it mean to rebuild the temple? I kind of hinted at it earlier. The temple was the center point of religious life for the Israelites. The temple meant being near God. In a real way, the temple meant having a relationship with God. The temple meant being in the presence of God. It was at the temple that the priests would uh, carry out the sacrifices that reminded the people and, and assured them that their sins were forgiven, that pointed ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not just a building to honor God or worship him. For the Israelites, the temple is the place where they can be near to God, where, where they are in relationship with him, and the grace and love of God could flow out from the temple to his people. So when they're saying that, oh, it's not time, it's not right time to build the house of God, what they're doing is they're essentially putting other priorities ahead of their relationship with God. They're looking at their own lives, their own comfort, their own security, their other worries. You know, are we going to be attacked? Are we going to have enough food, enough money to do this? And they're putting those fears ahead of how can we draw near to God? And that's a problem. Haggai says that's a problem. Uh, and it's highlighted in verse 4. It says, uh, Haggai writes, Is this a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
Um, we're not quite sure if paneled here refers to the type of roof or maybe other sort of aspects of its construction. But what the important thing is, is that almost every other time in the Bible that a house is described as a paneled house, it refers to the temple. The temple, the house of God, the place where God has set his presence to be with his people. A paneled house is the house of God. But now, God's house is in ruins. They don't have a temple. They're neglecting the presence of God while they're focusing on building up their own houses. They're dwelling in houses that are better than God's house. God's house, at this point, is in ruins. And that's not just like, it's not just about the house. It's not just about the buildings. Like, this is emblematic of the rest of their lives. They're putting their own comfort, their own peace, their own security ahead of drawing near to God. They're compromising on knowing God and having faith in him because they are afraid of the world and afraid of what circumstances might come. That's partly why Haggai keeps repeating, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. It's a title for God that's really emphasizing his power. And it's almost like he's saying, if you guys really believe that God was the Lord of hosts, that he was powerful and mighty, Y'all would be building this house and celebrating. But instead, you're cowering in your paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins. And he, and, he, and he talks about, like part of what he's saying is like, how is that going for you? How is it going for you to live your life in this way? And we see in verse 6 the consequences of that. He says, you've sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm, and he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He's basically saying, like, when you prioritize your own comfort, your own peace, your own security, at the expense of or to the exclusion of knowing God, those things aren't going to fulfill you. Those things are not going to make you feel complete. You might eat all the day long, but you will still be hungry. You might drink water, but you will still be thirsty. You might clothe yourself, but you will be warm. And all of the work and labor that you are doing, ultimately, is like storing change in a bag with holes in it. It is fruitless. Vanity. It's reminiscent of the book of Ecclesiastes. The physical drought that God has allowed to happen to the Israelites is indicative of the spiritual drought among God's people. And so God is calling them to return to him out of love. This whole like imagery of, of eating without being filled, it, uh, it makes me think of Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one. Y'all remember that? Captain Barbosa and his pirates from the Aztec gold, they've been cursed to be these like skeleton monsters. And there's this, that they want to turn back into humans, not just because like, they, I think they don't really mind being skeleton monsters, but they suffer hunger and cannot be filled. Here's a quote from Captain Barbosa, like when Elizabeth Swan like finds out that they're all skeleton monsters. He says, we all have the, we have all the desires of the living, but cannot satisfy them. 10 years I've been parched of thirst and unable to quench it. Ten years I've been starving to death and have not died. That is what happens to our souls when we are not living life unto God. When the Israelites are pursuing their own desires to the exclusion of glorifying God or living life with God. That's the consequence of living life for ourselves alone, right? We might succeed or fail, but, but even if we were to succeed at our own designs and fulfilling our own dreams... They will, apart from God, they'll wind up empty and barren. Because you and I were not created or designed to live for ourselves. We were created and designed to live 
as a person who receives the infinite love from the infinite loving one who is God. We were created for a greater love, a greater fulfillment, a greater hope than whatever it is that you might be tempted to hope in. And when we try to live this way, when we try to focus solely on our own desires, our own peace, our own security, our own comforts, like we receive a curse. The natural consequence is that we feel empty. We feel aimless. We feel hopeless. The things that we hope will fill us do not fulfill us. So what does it mean? What does it mean for us to live life to God? What does it mean to participate fully in the work that God is doing. We see a hint of it in this passage. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord says, Go and, and build this house. Go and build the house of God so that God will take pleasure in it and that he may be glorified. Go and build the house of God so that we can be near to him. Go and build the house of God so that we can have a relationship with God. The, 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 the main thing is not the building of it. It's the relationship with God. It's the drawing near to the Father. And I think practically what that looks like is mostly a question of priorities. right? It's not wrong to look after your own peace or security or comfort. It's not wrong to care about those things. Those are important things. Being faithful to what God's called you to do probably means being responsible, working hard, being careful with your resources. But the problem is when those things become ultimate things, and we exclude God from the equation. I think it's mostly a question of participating in the work that God is doing in your life and making that a priority for you. Um, when, we, when you hear that, um, I'm sure that there's a lot of different images or ideas of what, what does it mean to participate in the work that God is doing or to make, make God your top priority. I'm sure you all hear that a lot. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everything in your life has to be spiritual. Haggai isn't saying, hey, like, tear down your houses, sell your houses, and give it all to God. He doesn't say that. He says, go in the hills and, and cut down wood. Like, stay in your houses, but build the house of God. What that looks like for y'all, like, you don't need every single conversation to be a deep spiritual conversation. You don't need to sell everything you have and give it all away. Like, that's not what God is calling you to. We think of our lives sometimes, I think, in, in these discrete areas. Like, I have my spiritual part of my life. I have my school part of my life. I have my work. I have my friends. I have my, you know, family. What, what God is saying, what God wants from you, is that those things are all connected. And, and rather than seeing them as discrete, separate things, the spiritual aspect of your life like, God cares about all of those things. God cares about all of those different parts of your life. And really what it means to live life to God, to, to make God your top priority, is to bring God into all of those areas. And honor him in all of those areas. And, to, and basically what that looks like is, is essentially like pursuing his heart and loving others in each of those kind of different parts of your life. God's not calling us to get rid of every area except for the spiritual area, but to bring all the parts of our life before him and invite him into our heart and through our heart into every part of our lives as our Father and as our Lord. The truth is, if you seek to find fulfillment or security on your own, you will always feel empty. But if you look to the Lord and build his house, you'll actually get all of those things. Just sometimes not in the ways that you might want. It's like when Jesus says in in Matthew 6, he says, Seek first 
the righteousness of God and his kingdom, and all of the other things will be added to you. God loves to provide for his people. And right, like we should go into God's presence in reading the word and praying. Like those are maybe the more like spiritual side of like going into his presence and knowing him and, and making him a priority. But like when you eat a meal, like God, didn't, God made food delicious for us to enjoy. So when you eat a meal and it's like really good, when you enjoy that as a gift from God, you are glorifying him by doing that. When you enjoy the laughter of friends and hanging out with them, you are glorifying God by doing that. Ask him for help. Ask him into these parts of your life. He is the Lord over every inch of this universe. And we glorify him not only when we serve him and do sort of things that we feel like are are service-oriented, but we also glorify him when we enjoy the things that he's given us. And ultimately, you and I can do this. We can participate in the loving work of God for us and for the world because Jesus has accomplished it for us. Because Jesus actually built the house on his own apart from us. And yet he invites us into the work that he's already done. Which brings me to my second point. We are to participate faithfully, faithfully, believingly, trustingly in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Right? This passage is calling Israelites to literally build the house of God. And the temple that they end up building, they start to build it later in this chapter. We'll talk about it next week. The temple that they start building is the same one that was standing when Jesus was born. And when he was walking around and doing his ministry, the same Jesus that, that or the same temple that Jesus made a whip out of uh, and, and, and drove the money changers out of the temple, the same temple that he went in and preached in, that was this temple. And before Jesus was born, the temple was the only way for God to be with his people. And that changed when Jesus was born. The purpose of the temple pointing towards the idea of God being with us was fulfilled in the body of Jesus Christ. God made a true and a better temple for us in Jesus. And then he came and dwelt among us. Not only did, was there a building where we could go there and meet him, but he came and took on the form of a human being and experienced all the pain and suffering that you and I might feel. God made a better temple for us in Jesus' body, a place that we can meet him And not just that, actually, but the the New Testament actually says that God is building everyone who believes in Jesus to be a part of that temple. Ephesians 2, 19-22 says, So then you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. What that passage is saying is that you are the temple now. If you believe in Jesus, if you know him, if you believe that he's the Son of God and he died for your sins, you are the temple of God. You are his house, and he dwells in you. And... God's call to the Israelites in this passage of Haggai is fulfilled in your spiritual life. Not alone, but your spiritual life in Jesus that he has accomplished for you. 
Right? The temple now, the place where God's presence is with his people, is in and through Jesus and all who believe in him, and maybe even most specifically in the church. That's partly why we say we love the church and it's important for y'all to be there. Because that's the participating in the work that God is doing means building up his church. Right? What, what Ultimately, what Haggai is calling the Israelites to do is to give their hearts to God. He's not saying, he's not wanting them to build this temple because the temple itself is what matters. He's not asking them to build this building because there's some sort of magical, mystical aspect to the building. This temple that they build will be uh, actually destroyed in the year 70 by the Roman armies. But God's presence with his people will never go away. It will last forever because it is in Jesus and he has an indestructible, eternal life. What he's calling the Israelites to do is to give their hearts to God, to believe in his promises of grace and mercy, and to live that out, to obey him. Loving God looks like loving obedience. Haggai is pointing forwards and anticipating the spiritual reality that we have today, which is that God is with us. God is near to you. He's not far. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter what doubts you may have had, no matter what sins you might have committed, no matter what in your heart might make you feel broken or unworthy of being loved, God knows it all, and he is still willing to come near to you. Because of what Jesus has done for us, he holds us in his arms like his beloved children and makes us a part of his house. Haggai calls the Israelites to respond to this, to live out the faith that they're claiming to hold. He warns them of the consequences and discipline that might come and tells them what to do. Go, gather wood, and turn God's house from a ruin to a place that God can delight in. Right? So what Haggai's doing, he's calling the Israelites and us to build the house of God faithfully. And like I said earlier, the person who is actually building the house of God now is Jesus. He bore the cost for building it. He paid the cost for building his house in his blood. He paid the price, and all we have to do now is participate. The house is being built. Jesus invites us to participate in that building. It makes me think of uh, the house Casita in Encanto. I don't know if you all saw that movie. The house that the Madrigal family lives in, it's like a living house. And as they you know, add members to it, and as they build it and sort of bring things into the house, the house kind of builds itself. It's already doing that work. Really, like, they're not building the house. They're kind of just, like, participating in the building of the house that the house is already doing. Which, ultimately, is to make room for the family who lives in it. In Haggai, God is calling the Israelites to build a physical building. That's not what he's calling us to do. He's not calling you to go out and, like, build a church building. Although, if there's a church that, like, wants to build a building, that's cool. Um, But today, what he's calling us to do is to participate in building up a living house that is already being built by God through his Holy Spirit, founded upon the work that Jesus has done. And so what does that look like for you? I think mostly it looks like making room for other people. Inviting people in. Bringing people to Jesus. Loving people well. Jesus is the presence of God for us and with us, and so what we are called to do, ultimately, is participate in what he's already doing. And so, like, something that y'all need to do is to care about each other. Like, see each other as the building blocks that God is crafting for his house. 
Be concerned about what is going on in each other's lives. Not like meddling or judging, but y'all should care about one another and what's going on in each other's lives. Encourage one another. I don't think that most of y'all realize the tremendous power that y'all wield over each other. Y'all's words have real meaning and weight and power. And the more that you encourage one another, the more not only are you inviting people to experience the love of God, but you are actually reflecting God's love to them when you love one another. Look, secondly, we ought to look to Jesus as the foundation of our relationship with God. Jesus has already built this house. Whatever Haggai is calling us to, it's not to build something new. It's to participate in a work that has been going on for 2,000 years. He has brought you near, Jesus has brought you near, and so built you into God's house, it is as if you were one of the bricks interlocking together as part of the wall. Rest in that reality. And finally, you know, a final implication is that you should invest in a Christian community. I would love for that to be RUF. Come and engage, come meet with me, meet with Anna Russell, hang out with each other, invest in your relationships. And ultimately, right, like join a church, whether that's now here in Statesboro, whenever you leave here and graduate, this is the place that God has purposed for you to grow, where he is going to work through you and in you as you look to Jesus and lift up his name. Right, like a lot of times I talk to students and and y'all are wrestling with questions of like, what is God's will for my life? And I don't always know that answer. But one thing that is definitely a part of that, part of that answer for each of you, will be found in the church. God is building us to be a church together. I want to close by reading some passages from 1 Peter 2 that that, uh, Peter writes about this reality. He calls us living stones. He says, uh, as you come to Jesus, who himself is a living stone, Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable acceptable to God through Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's the hallmark of this community. That is the, the thing that Haggai is driving towards. The thing that should be at the bottom of your heart, the center of your heart, is that because of what God has done, you were a person, you were a people who has received mercy. Participate in the work that God is doing by reminding each other of that. Let's pray.